0: Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week we revisited an interview from our first series with historian Yuval Noah Harari, whose book Homo Deus peered into the future of mankind. This week we talked to a British physicist and astrobiologist about the possibility of alien life. Moore's law of
1: computing shows that the energy per bit flip is going down all the time and we can imagine if we get into the realm of quantum computing that in the future it may be possible to have stupendous intellectual power encapsulated in a system that burns no more than uh, you know, the average household and you plonk that somewhere in the galaxy we're never going to notice it unless it deliberately tries to attract our attention.
0: That's the voice of Paul Davis, a professor at Arizona State University, who spoke to Clive Cookson, the FT Science Editor, at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Austin, Texas.
2: We're talking about the search for extraterrestrial life, if there is any. So let's start with the famous Fermi paradox, which Enrico Fermi, the physicist, first voiced almost 70 years ago. Where is everyone? He asked. And... In 2018, after searching for several decades, we still don't know the answer. Where is everyone? We know that the universe has many trillions of planets. Our galaxy has at least 100 billion planets. So, Paul, what's the answer to the paradox?
1: (laughs) Uh, It's a very real paradox. A lot of people try to shrug it aside. It's based on the notion that our solar system is about a third as old as the universe. There were stars and planets around long before Earth even existed. And so if the universe is teeming with life, as many astrobiologists would like to believe, then at least on some of those planets with life, you would expect to have intelligent life and space-faring communities. And there's simply been plenty of time for one such expansionary community to have spread out across the whole galaxy. You might think, well, the galaxy is vast, and it's true. It may take you a huge amount of time, thousands or even tens of thousands of years to go from one star system to another, but that's easily time uh, to colonize a planet and then spread from there to another and to another. So in the lifetime of the galaxy, you might well have expected Earth to have been, if not colonized by extraterrestrial life then at least visited. And so here we are today with the program called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Mainly that means sweeping the skies with radio telescopes in the hope of stumbling across some sort of message from ET coming our way. And so far there's been nothing but an eerie silence. And so the optimists say, well, we've only just scratched the surface. We need more money, bigger telescopes and a broadened effort. The pessimists say, well, maybe we are alone in the universe after all.
2: Are you a pessimist or an optimist, Paul?
1: Well, I suppose I would call myself a well-wishing sceptic. My feeling about this particular way of doing SETI is that it really is most unlikely to succeed for the simple reason that we have the capability to pick up only messages which are deliberately directed at Earth, so beamed at us from... Some community which might be hundreds of light years away or even further. Now, if you're a thousand light years away, you see Earth as it was a thousand years ago. That's the laws of physics. You can't get around that. However powerful their instruments, they're not going to see us as we are now. They don't know we've got radio technology. It makes no sense for ET to be wasting resources, sending messages our way until they know we're on the air. And they're not going to know that until they pick up our first broadcast, maybe this one, in another thousand years or so.
2: But what about the idea that was very prevalent when I started writing about this twenty years ago that although people on Earth on the whole were not sending out deliberate radio signals, Earth was sort of leaking radio, so anyone right. within sort of tens of light years might have been able to detect some activity. That's here. right.
1: Some people think we shouldn't be deliberately beaming messages ourselves into space. I think that's a silly argument because, as you say, it's been leaking out for about 100 years. We can't do anything about that. We can't get them back, those radio messages. And it's true that with a powerful enough instrument, anybody within about, say, 50 light years could by now have detected these messages and sent some sort of signal back to us, which we haven't yet detected, There's another idea, which I've always thought is attractive, although very speculative, which is that maybe an alien civilization has sent probes to the solar system, and they're sort of dormant somewhere, going around the sun, sitting, waiting for something interesting to happen on Earth. That would be far better, because if we could activate a dormant probe, then we could... Converse with it in more or less real time. It would be right on our cosmic doorstep.
2: That's rich material for science fiction and indeed has already been used in sci fi, hasn't it? Right.
1: There was an even more wacky idea that. I love wacky ideas. So, <laughs> so although I'm a skeptic, you know, yes. I like to push the envelope. Uh, even more wacky idea, which is that uh, these days we communicate with each other on Earth, of course, largely uh, on the internet. Yes. So maybe if ET is out there, the first thing we would know is that it would set up a website and invite us to log on, or we could invite ET to log on, and we would simply converse on the internet. It's an appealing prospect, and the late Alan Tuff, a Canadian adventurer, decided to set up such a website. And, of course, ET did log on quite a lot, but these were just hoaxes. And then <laughs> the question was, how would you know? How could you tell that you really were dealing with a, an advanced extraterrestrial entity? And so he called me one day as I was walking along a beach in uh, sydney and said we've got a really convincing case and we're putting a lot of questions to so this yes. entity getting a lot of very sensible answers what would be the discriminator and i said well try getting this thing to factorize a very large number into the product of primes because yes. this is well known to be computationally intractable for even the world's best supercomputer. And lo and behold, this thing came back with the right answer. And I said, well, try a bigger number, at which point <laughs> the hoaxer threw in the towel and it was a bored computer <laughs> operator from, from Birmingham. So, But it does sort of raise the whole issue about how do we know that we're dealing with intelligence? What is a signature of intelligence, more, yes. more generally? And what is the best way of searching for that signature of intelligence without being too... Confined by our own human prejudices about what will we do and how do things work for us.
2: What about using another thing that they're doing more is sort of optical signals, looking for sort of laser flashes from extraterrestrial civilizations. Is that a better right. route, do you think, yeah. than radio? I think it's
1: about equivalent, and I've always had a bit of a soft spot for that. Charlie Towns, who invented the laser, was a strong proponent of optical SETI, and the latest breakthrough initiatives, which have been funded by Yuri Milner, includes a component for optical SETI. But it still works on the premise that they know we are here and expending resources trying to attract our attention. I think a better strategy is to forget about messages and just look for the most general signatures of intelligence. So in other words, if you look at the moon, say, is there signs of technology on the moon, artifacts on the moon? And the answer is absolutely there is. There's a satellite called Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. The downlink from that satellite happens to be at Arizona State University. So I know these people. They employ students at like $10 an hour, to stare at these pictures and look for anything interesting mainly for geological features but of course they have detected intelligence on the moon uh, technology on the moon so far it's all been american and russian but you know has that capability but it raises this whole question how would you spot the signature of non-human technology how might it manifest itself if it's a million years in the future or 10 million years or billion year technology it, it's almost impossible to figure out what footprint there would be in the surrounding environment.
2: People have looked for very unusual stars with light patterns that don't seem to be the result of dust clouds and strange comets and planets on the grounds that these might be some huge energy harvesting, megastructure. What about that approach?
1: Again, I've always had a soft spot for that. Freeman Dyson, who thought of that uh, idea back in 1960, is a very old friend of mine and uh, a great inspiration to me in my career. And uh, some of his ideas are pretty crazy and some some are worth thinking about, but that's all right in science. And he did suggest that maybe an energy-hungry community would surround its star- with some sort of megastructure to trap all or most of the light. Um, Might we see evidence for that? And there was a flurry of activity a year or two ago with something known as Tabby's star, uh, named after Tabby, whose second name begins with B, and I can't pronounce, in spite of the fact she came to visit me, and I (laughs) took a tutorial in the pronunciation of her name, but it's uh, universally known as Tabby's star. And uh, it's very intriguing, latest on it looks like it is not an alien megastructure. It what a has. shame. Uh, yes, it's, uh, but nice try. It's the type of thing that we should be looking for. But of course, again, mostly we are simply working on the basis of what will we do writ large. And when I think of my own enthusiasm mm. for this field, when I was growing up in London in the 50s and 60s and sort of reading comics and things, all of the futurism was really basically taking current technology and imagining it was being done on a grander scale. Uh, And so I was very inspired by Dan Dare in the Eagle Comet, who had a rocket that looked pretty much like the ones that were being launched at the time, but he was able to fly off around the solar system and just get another tank of fuel on the moon and then zip off to Mars and Venus and so on. And clearly this is ridiculous. And so the problem about futurology is that we tend to miss what is genuinely new. And in the case of my own youth, what was missed was the whole sort of information revolution.
0: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation
2: And we don't know either, on the basis of the laws of physics and biology as it exists on Earth and chemistry, how different biologically an advanced civilization might be to us, do we?
1: I'm pretty convinced that biological intelligence is a transitory phase in the evolution of intelligence. Even on Earth, we can see that a lot of the intellectual heavy lifting is being done by... I want to use words like computer or robots or something. These are inappropriate words for what is happening. We're talking obviously about artificial intelligence, but even the word artificial I think doesn't quite capture it. It's designed information management systems, I was cumbersome expression. The word design is important because so far intelligence on Earth has been a product of Darwinian evolution. It's a very slow way of getting there. Now we can accelerate by many orders of magnitude the evolution of intelligence by designing systems that then design their successes and so on. So we're about to unleash an explosion of increased capability in solving all sorts of problems. So if we imagine a million years down the track, supposing we're contacting an extraterrestrial call it civilization, it would be overwhelmingly likely to be not a flesh and blood beings clustering around some sort of radio telescope. It would be with some product of a very ancient biological system, and this product we lack a name for, because it doesn't necessarily have to be inorganic. I mean, it might be all sorts of yes. melding of organic and inorganic things, but the, the point is it will be designed, and it will be post-biological.
2: And... Maybe it would be so different from us that maybe it is out there and we just wouldn't recognise it.
1: We wouldn't recognise it because its footprint might be inconspicuous and because we tend to think, we were talking about Dyson spheres, that's thinking in terms of energy as the appropriate parameter for technological prowess. These days we tend to think energy consumption is not really it. It would be more like megabytes or megaflops or it would be the rate of information processing or something of that sort. And Moore's law of computing shows that the energy per bit flip is going down all the time. And we can imagine if we get into the realm of quantum computing that in the future it may be possible to have stupendous intellectual power encapsulated in a system that burns no more than, uh, you know, the average household. And you plonk that somewhere in the galaxy, we're never going to notice it unless it deliberately
2: tries to attract our attention. It would still be bound by the laws of physics if it wished to expand across the galaxy. In other words, it would still take a thousand years for the information to cross or maybe it wouldn't maybe there would be be ways of transcending Uh, I
1: don't think so and the other problem about extreme futurism which is what we're doing here is what are the rules and I've always felt that you should stick to the laws of physics as we know them best because whilst Nobody would say that it's absolutely impossible we've got this wrong. There are some things which are so well established that we should stick to them. The finite speed of light is one of those, and... If you abandon that, well, then it ceases to be informed futurism. It just becomes idle speculation.
2: Wormhole speculation, for example. Right,
1: right. right. Uh, Well, wormholes, yes. (laughs) I've written about wormholes. We don't know of any absolutely (laughs) fundamental reason why wormholes could not exist. But we can imagine that they don't. But uh, that's very much on the edge.
2: If, contrary, I think, to your expectations, we do get a signal either a deliberate signal aimed at us from an extraterrestrial civilization out there in our galaxy, or we eavesdrop on some clearly intelligent radio-optical or or other communication. What do you think will be the effect on Earth? It will obviously be the biggest scientific discovery of the century. It's hard to think of anything bigger if it's at all comprehensible. Is there any idea about how people on Earth would react and what the governance structures would be?
1: I've thought a lot about this subject because for a while I was chairing something called the SETI Post-Detection Task Group for the International Academy of Astronautics, and it was our job to deliberate on exactly these questions. It is, of course, very hard. What I think is generally true is that these, uh, how can I put it, uh, cosmic discoveries, these things that really fundamentally change our view of ourselves and our place in the world... They are, of course, big news at the time, but because they don't impact on daily life, it takes a long time for it to seep in to our culture. And if you think of Copernicus or Darwin, these were fundamentally changing the way humans saw themselves. And, of course, today we live our lives knowing that the Earth is going around the sun, we're not the centre Mm. of the universe, and knowing that we're a product of nature, uh, have descended out of the biosphere. All of this is part of our lives. We don't go around worrying about this on a daily basis, but it's important in the way we think of ourselves and plan our future. And the same would be the discovery that we're not alone. It would clearly have a difference, but I think it would depend very much on whether we can simply say, that's it, we've determined we're not alone, there's somebody else out there, Versus we are actually in contact with an extraterrestrial civilization. If we were in contact, for example, like if there were yes. an alien probe of stupendous capability just on our doorstep, and suddenly we could access information that is completely beyond our imagining at the moment, that would be extremely disruptive. And uh, an example I give is that if you imagine a very altruistic community that might see that we're struggling a bit with uh, energy sources releasing the planet, might give us the secret of how to get controlled nuclear fusion, which people have been trying to do... 50, 60 years, and you think, well, that's great, you know, how could that be bad? Well, the answer is it would completely disrupt the stock market, all sorts of industries would be overturned, it, in the end might be very useful, but it may cause mayhem. Meanwhile, it would be very destabilising, so just one little bit of technical information delivered in an altruistic spirit could seriously backfire.
2: Is there any agreed procedure about the global response? Would the UN be involved?
1: Yeah, there is an agreed procedure and I think it's pretty worthless
2: because these days it's
1: almost impossible to keep anything secret. It seems like with things like social media, we'd only need somebody hinting in a pub that there was something exciting happening at a radio telescope nearby and the secret would be out. There is a sort of a protocol about a chain of who gets informed first and so on. But in terms of what do we do next, No, there really is no agreed position. I think what we wouldn't want is if there is a transmitting source which has been identified for any Tom Dick or Harry to commandeer a radio telescope and then blast the ether with their homespun wisdom as if speaking for planet Earth. I think we would all like to feel that there should be a more considered response. But
2: there's nowhere policing this briefly just stepping down from extraterrestrial intelligence to extraterrestrial life. Even if we are alone in terms of intelligent civilizations that we can contact, what are the prospects of at least finding simple or microbial life, do you think?
1: Well, here we must divide searching the solar system, where we can actually send probes, to trying to detect signs of life on extra solar planets. Mars has always been a favourite of mine. I'm convinced that there has been life on Mars. In fact, I know there has been, for the simple reason that rocks from Earth go to Mars from time to time... When comets and asteroids strike the Earth, they splash rocks around. Mars rocks come to Earth. We've got several at our university. And so as a means of transporting microorganisms between Mars and Earth, I think this is pretty much established. And so if you get life on one of those planets, you get it on both. But it is, of course, the same life. What we'd really like to know is whether life has started more than once, because that's the thing that has truly profound philosophical implications. Unless you believe life is a miracle, which I certainly don't, a lot of people feel well, if life on Earth is just the result of a random accident, it's an aberration in one insignificant corner of the universe, a freak of chemistry, then marvelous so it may be, we are just basically freaks. Whereas if there's a sort of inbuilt life principle in the universe if life emerges naturally and automatically as part of intrinsically bio laws well then that would make us all feel more at home in the universe it would make us feel that the universe has some sort of point to it or there's a scheme of things that incorporates life and who knows maybe even mind and so that's not quite a religious position but it's sort of getting close to having that level of inspiration so i think just a single microbe that is life, but not as we know it, would be transformative in that respect.
2: On that rather beautiful philosophical note, thanks very much it's indeed. It's been my pleasure.
0: We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic@ft.com.